Amen. Thank you, Jack. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be worshiping with you this morning. I'm Robbie, one of the teaching pastors here. If you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to John chapter 19. As we continue our studies in the Gospel of John, we are now in John chapter 19, and we are looking at verses 1 through 16, or the first half of, verses, or, or first half of verse 16. So John chapter 19, 1 through 16. And let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, our, our key truth this morning is very simple, but also very deep and profound. And I hope we hear these words from this text in John. The key truth is this by patiently enduring rejection, Jesus bears witness to the truth that God loves us. By patiently enduring rejection, Jesus bears witness to the truth that God loves us. You see, this is a passage that highlights the suffering of Jesus as eminently experienced by his being rejected. Now, that's a question for us, I think. How do you typically react to being rejected? How do you typically react to rejection? I think you'll agree with me that rejection is a very acute form of suffering. We can attest to that from our own experience, can't we? Now, perhaps that is not a popular thing to admit in this, our very individualistic day and age. Uh, we may feel that it is an embarrassing thing to admit that kind of neediness, right? That you, that you need friends and that it really hurts when you're rejected. But we know that we were actually made for community. We were made to need friends. And that means that rejection is, in a, very, is a very acute form of suffering. 
Friendship, in fact, it eases the burden of suffering, doesn't it? Haven't you found that? In a mysterious way, it eases the burden of suffering, but rejection accentuates it. And if that's true for us, how much more for our Savior Jesus, whose whole life was in the service of the very people who now despise him? But remember, as I've been saying in this series, it's important for us to see here not merely a record of tragedy, but even a witness to something greater. In this witness, Jesus patiently endures rejection to witness to the one thing that can overcome it, his own love. And once you see the love of Jesus displayed in his suffering, it is a fact that never leaves you. In fact, you begin, and after all, how could he, seeing how much he suffered for you? Now, I need to clarify something because you may be thinking, Perhaps you've noticed in our key truth, I said that in these verses, Jesus bears witness to the fact that God loves us. Now, why did I put it like that, if in these verses we see the love of Jesus preeminently displayed? Well, it's important to remember that this witness that Jesus gives testifies not only to his, lo- his own love, although it certainly does that. We remember John 15, no one has greater love than this than he who lays down his life for his friends. So Jesus witnesses to his own love, but he also witnesses to the love of the Father. We remember famously, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish but have eternal life. And the love of the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout the, the Gospel of John. So for us, the people of God, the witness of Jesus is not only a witness to his own particular love, but the more we see the love of Jesus, we also see the love of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We're invited to see the love of the triune God for his own people. And so let's observe these things in the text itself. And first pay attention with me to the first five verses of John chapter 19. We see here the action of Pilate and the soldiers And we see that what they do is done particularly to make light of the charge made by the Jewish authorities that Jesus was a subversive, would-be king. So they're making sarcastic sport of him. We may even see here somewhat of a, well, how would you describe it? A a sort of horrendous attempt by Pilate, maybe to save Jesus' own skin? We can almost see him thinking this way. Well, if I can bloody Jesus enough, if I can show him enough of a pathetic figure and display him to the people, perhaps they'll finally see, yeah, it's really crazy that we ever thought Jesus would be a king. I mean, like, look at him. He's bloodied. He's wearing this crown of of thorns. He's wearing this mock purple robe. He's not a king. Look at him. He's so pathetic. Forget about the whole crucifixion business. Just let him go. Let him, you know, go off and bother us no more. We can almost see that the pilot is maybe thinking this way. If I just bloody Jesus enough, perhaps I'll get out of my predicament. And so Pilate has him flog. And then he announces that he's bringing Jesus out so that Jesus in his bloody appearance can be seen to be not a danger to the Roman state. And Pilate says, behold the man. And yet Pilate's declaration is one for us as well, isn't it? It continues to ring out through the ages. Behold the man, Jesus. What do we see? Well, we see the love of Jesus displayed in patiently enduring the injustice and folly of the people around him. The dishonor done to God. The profaneness and the hypocrisy of the people. Think about this. Many of the soldiers here who whip Jesus who sarcastically placed this crown of thorns upon his temple, probably were with him in the garden. Do you remember what happened in the garden? 
Peter takes a sword and cuts Malchus's ear off. Now, John doesn't record what happens right after that, but we know from the other gospels like Luke that what Jesus does is he picks up that ear and miraculously restores it to Malchus. So these soldiers then saw that. They saw that miracle. They saw that compassion. They saw that love. And now they take this whip and whip Jesus' back with it. They take this crown of thorns and place it upon Jesus' head. The, the, the disregard, the malice of the love that Jesus had shown in that very moment, they totally disregard that. So we see here the covetousness, the fraud, the oppression, the malice, the envy of humanity on full display. And that is a difficult thing. It would be a difficult thing for any of us to endure, but how much more so for the one who was perfect in every way? In Psalm 120, verse 5, the psalmist laments that he has to live among a people who disregard God. And he says it's a very grievous thing to me. He says, look around, O nations, and feel sorry for me. Woe is me that I have to live among this wicked, this wicked people that disregard God and his law. And in fact, in Ezekiel, God tells the prophet to go around and make a record of all the people who go around the city of Jerusalem and sigh because of all the wickedness that they see. They just can't hardly stand it. Now, now, some of us are easily overstimulated, and this without any experience of the divine peace from which Jesus descended. So, so we can well imagine his suffering was very great in this moment. To endure this, this company of people who disregard God, who disregard his goodness, who pay no attention to his love. His suffering for us was very great, and he did it to witness to his own love. See this also in verses six through nine. Notice the response of the chief priests and the officers of the Jewish people to Jesus. Jesus bloodied and flogged and wearing this crown of thorns, it's increased malice and fury. They demand his crucifixion. And that, to that, Pilate replies, probably mockingly, that they ought to do it themselves since he can see no guilt or threat in Jesus. And the response of the Jews to this statement reveals that their initial charge against Jesus, that he was acting subversively against the Roman state, it was really just a front. Their real animus against him stemmed from his claim to be the Son of God. And when Pilate discovers this, their true basis of their hatred, he becomes even more afraid. We people, we can abide many things but we cannot abide the suggestion that we need Jesus for a savior. How do, doesn't this reveal the, the, the depth of our own pride and stubbornness? We can abide many things, but we cannot abide that Jesus would come as our savior. Now, possibly, Pilate's fear stemmed from his own superstition. Possibly, he was like many Romans around him who, though you know, he regarded himself as basically a, a rational person and probably didn't have a lot of truck with the, the false religions that were around the Roman Empire, he probably had this sense that, yeah, there's a lot more out there than I can fully account for. And you know, people who go around claiming to be the son of God or some divine figure, hmm, maybe that's something to pay attention to. So possibly his own fear stems from his own superstition. Or possibly, it stems from a clearer sense that he had of the volatility of the situation before him. We know that he was very concerned not to let this become a riot. So possibly he's worried that, you know, once he sees the true basis of their hatred, that the situation is even more volatile than he realized. But more probably, it's because at some level he realized that he was captive to his own sin. 
and it was driving him along a course that he knew was evil, and he couldn't get out of it. One of Pilate's and John's near contemporaries was a Roman poet called Juvenal, and he wrote this, Heaven's high revenge on human crime behold, though earthly verdicts may be bought and sold, his judge the sinner in his heart he bears, and conscience racks him with tormenting cares. And I think we see a bit of this in Pilate's response to Jesus here. He's afraid, and he can't do anything about it because he's captive to his own sin. Sin is all that is needed to make the heart perfectly miserable and afraid. And friends, Jesus was silent before Pilate so that you and I would not have to fear him like this. Later on, John will write in his epistle, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfect, perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So friends, in the response of Jesus, in this response of silence before Pilate, we see Jesus' love for us so that we would never have to fear like Pilate fears here. We would never have to be afraid that our sin is gonna make us captive to a course that we cannot get out of. If we will look to Jesus and see in his suffering his great love for us, we are perfected in love because we come to him and we cast aside all pretension and all feeling that he will reject us if we come to him with our sin and we come to him and find in him a savior who matches our need. Pilate didn't see this. So Pilate attempts to solve the dilemma he's in by vainly searching for more facts, like we so often do. We think, oh, well, if only I had more information. And so he asks Jesus, where are you from? Give me some more information. Maybe I can find in here a loophole. Maybe I can finally figure this out. Maybe I can get out of my predicament. I just need more information. But he doesn't. Is not more information, but an honest reckoning with the truth. And dear friends, that's true for us too. So often we can think in our troubles, so often we can think in our our slow discipleship that, that the need of the hour is really just more information. If I just understood more, if I just had a clearer sense of what I was doing in this world, if I just had more information, I could figure it out, I could get out of my dilemma, I could ease the conscience that I feel that condemns me day and night. But friends, that is not our need. And to this, Jesus is silent not because he doesn't want to hear us, not because he doesn't care about us, but because he invites us to come to him. He invites us to see him. He invites us to meditate upon his suffering on our behalf and the way that that witnesses to his love, to the love of his Father, and to the love of the Holy Spirit who is working in us to perfect us in love so that we should not fear. But this is more, there's more that is going on in Jesus' silence here. That is certainly what is at stake, but also Jesus refuses to go along with any attempt to minimize or evade crucifixion. Bearing the sin of his people, charged with our rebellion against God, Jesus knows there can be only one just outcome, and that is the sin bearer must die. And so he stands there silent. If anybody could come up with a reason for Pilate not to crucify him, Jesus could have done it. 
If anybody could have shown with perfect clarity the injustice of all that is happening here, Jesus could have done it. If anybody could have shown and just spoken a word that would knock over everyone there and almost as it were open up hell to them and cast them, cast them down into it, Jesus could have done it. But instead he is silent because he knows the moment he bears the weight of sin upon his own shoulders, there is only one just outcome here. He must, he must die. We know that in Psalm 7, we're told that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. Now, if you or I felt the weight and the outrage of all this world's sin, even for a moment, we would be totally undone with the trauma of it. But Jesus bore the guilt of his people across every age of this world's existence, from the blood of righteous Abel, which cried out from the ground, vindicate me. Down through the ages, Jesus stood to bear the consequence of our sin. And not only all the evil under the sun that has been committed, but the good that was not done, all the good that we failed to do. And he bore all the dreadful effects of God's vengeance against sin. Now, what the full nature of all of that agony was, Jesus alone, who bore it, can probably tell us. I mean, who could possibly comprehend the, the mixture of that awful cup of God's wrath, of God's displeasure against sin? Isaiah said it well, a passage we're all familiar with. We, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So friends, Jesus was silent before Pilate so that the witness of his love would ring out through the ages, even so that you and I could hear it today. This is the highest function that a minister of the gospel has, to proclaim to you the love of Jesus for you even this very day, and not on the basis of anything that I say, not on my judgment, certainly, not on my opinion, but upon the witness of Jesus himself for you even this day in this place. Many of us, I, I, I fear, we are wrestling with things privately, and we are worried that if people really knew the, the sins that we bear in our hearts, the sins that we struggle with, people would cast us out. But we fail to see Jesus here who suffered in this great way because he desires that we would know his great love for his people. And oh, what a terrible thing it would be that you would continue to hold on to sins that are already paid for, that you would continue to hold on to sins as though you could make atonement for them, though you never could. You would continue to hold on to sins that Jesus is willing at this very moment to cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness, never to remember them because he bore the weight of them in this moment, and that he is speaking to us now so that we would know his great love. That is why he was silent. So if you say no to the love of Jesus, where will you go to find a love that will go to this length to save you? Well, friends, I, I hope that you will turn to Jesus. I hope that you will know that you are given the highest freedom that could ever be found to be rid of your sins, to be able to confess them, to be honest about where you are, and that you would know the comforting love of Jesus. He was silent on your behalf. He was willing to bear the sin and all the dreadful cup of God's wrath so that we would know the freedom that comes from his forgiveness. Now, continuing in verse 10 through 11, we see that Pilate's authority 
is not ultimately the driving force behind Jesus' crucifixion. This is an amazing, astonishing thing. Jesus responds to Pilate's questioning, do you not know that I have authority to crucify you and authority to release you? And Jesus says to him, you would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you from heaven. So, so Jesus looks beyond Pilate to the overarching purpose of God in what he has undergone and what he is still yet to undergo. Jesus had the most amazing ability to see beyond what was presently before him in the circumstances, an ability that we often struggle with. We are so often overwhelmed with the things that are right in front of us. We so often fail to see God's overarching purpose and plan and peace before us, but Jesus never struggled with it, even for one moment. And it is amazing that he didn't struggle in this very moment. If we were to undergo the suffering that Jesus has already undergone in these verses, to be flogged like this, to be mocked like this, the very hands that he made, smacking him this way and that in contempt and sarcastic joking, our thoughts would be swallowed up by all of that. We wouldn't be able to see, we wouldn't be able to remember our theology it's easy enough, maybe in, in these days, although we still struggle with it when we come to church. Remember, God is sovereign and God is good. God is you know, in control of all these events and he's leading me to purposes that are greater than I could ever imagine on my own. We have a difficulty remembering that even the best of times. And Jesus remembers it in the midst of all this bloodiness, all this suffering. And he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from heaven. The overarching purpose of God Jesus also says, doesn't negate human responsibility. There is blame to go around for those who are involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Jesus points out this, that Pilate's blame is less because he acts in relative ignorance. But those who've delivered Jesus over to him have the greater sin because theirs is a deliberate rejection of Jesus. And in this way, as sobering as it is to say, and in this way, they are doing the works of their father, the devil. Jesus had already told them this in John chapter eight, and they got so mad they almost stoned him right there. But they are doing the work of their father, the devil. So in this, in this suffering that Jesus is undergoing, he is bearing the fury of the devil. This was the hour of the devil's seeming triumph when in all of his odious pomp, he unleashed his fury upon the Holy One of God and all the love and light and truth and beauty that he represented, his malice against God's good creation, his hatred of his people. The, the devil, Jesus tells us, has been a liar from the beginning. He, he cannot stand the truth. He cannot stand goodness. He looks upon God, and he looks upon God's love for the world and creatures like us who, in respect to the things that we in our sinful flesh glory in, strength and might and great wisdom and the ability to know all mysteries, and he looks at God's love for us people, and he thinks, that is pathetic and weird and gross, and I hate it. And he looks at Jesus now, come as he is, to be the light of the world, the salvation of mankind, and in this, his moment of seeming triumph, he unleashes all of his fury and all the malice of the Jewish people who cast Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be crucified and say to him as they behold him standing there bloodied. After all three years of him going around doing good, raising people even from the dead, restoring sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, and their only response to him is, crucify him. The malice here, they're doing the work of their father, the devil. And here now, Jesus must have begun to feel 
the sense of that loss of God's presence. All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus has been ministered to by his heavenly father. Do you remember his remark at the conclusion of his conversation with the, woman, the Samaritan woman at the well? The disciples had gone you know, to go get some food and Jesus has this remarkable conversation. And, and, and she is so gripped by his love and compassion for her that she runs back to the Samaritan village and says, I, I don't really know how to explain this, but y'all, y'all gotta come see. I, I think he might be the savior. He told me things that no one else could have known. And the disciples come back and they've got the food with them and they're like, here you go, Jesus, here's your, here's your lunch. And he says to them, I have food that you don't even know about. Because doing the will of my father, that's food enough for me. And they didn't, in the moment, they didn't get it. Like, who gave him a sandwich? You know, just totally missing the point. How, how often that is us. But here now, Jesus must have begun to feel that sense of the loss of God's pleasure. The loss of his closeness with the Lord. The loss of that comfort that the Lord's angels came to give him throughout his life. And he patiently endured it because he loves you. Let's continue to see this in verses 12 through 16. Now, judging on the charge against Jesus that he has claimed for himself the the identity of the Son of God, Pilate's fear inclines him to release Jesus. But judging on the charge that he has claimed the title of a king, Pilate's fear inclines him to give in to the madness of the crowd. Now, John is careful to remind us that this all took place on the day of the preparation of Passover. So it's Friday, before the Sabbath, at the time of the Passover. And the import here is that we must, if we are going to be faithful readers of this text, faithful hearers of the witness to Jesus, we must look beyond the immediate circumstances and discern the larger purpose in the rejection of Jesus that is so shockingly on display here. The real significance is that Jesus willingly endures this rejection for the salvation of his people in the same way that the people of Israel so many thousands of years before broke that lamb's neck and took its blood and spread it over their doors so that when the Lord of judgment came through the land, he would pass over their houses and spare them. In that same way now, the blood of the lamb is spread over his people. If you and I were to stand before the holy and loving and righteous God who cannot abide sin. And if you and I were to stand before him with sin still upon us, even the tiniest sin, we would be consumed. Not only would we not be able to stand before this holy and righteous judge, but we would feel ourselves so filled with shame that we could not bear to look at him, even for one moment. So we need a savior who will cover us with his blood, who will fill us with his righteousness, who will enable the Lord to come upon us and pass over our sin and still be righteous. So Jesus willingly endures this rejection for the salvation of you and me. He's silent to testify to his love for us. Now that rejection is then further highlighted by the outrageous statement made by the Jewish leadership that they have no king but Caesar. This is incredible, really, when you think about it. They don't merely reject Jesus in, their, in this moment. In their fury, which is, as it were, just totally overcomes them, they reject the God of their fathers. 
In one critical moment, they reveal the truth of Jesus' judgment against them. They, against them. They don't recognize him because they don't know the Father. All this talk through all of their lives, well, we are for the Jewish people. We are for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We are the children of Abraham. And, and we grumble and we groan and we pray for God's deliverance from the Roman authorities because we cannot abide that we should ever suffer God's glorious promises and his covenant to be overshadowed by this pagan and heathen empire. And in this moment, as they see Jesus bloodied and standing before him in their fury, they say, not only do we reject Jesus, but we have no king but Caesar. Forget all that stuff. We are good Roman citizens. Friends, that's shocking. That is madness. But do we do better? Sometimes we have to be careful, I think, because oftentimes we can see Jesus and we can be so fixated upon what we are expecting him to do in our lives. And when we get disappointed, so often we run, as we say here often, to lovers less wild. So often we try to find salvation in places that we before were confident we would never seek out. We may spend the whole of our lives preaching the gospel and singing the glories of the cross and saying, I am God's and he is mine. And yet when the critical moment comes and we find ourselves disappointed, when the critical moment comes and it really comes down to whether we will trust Jesus in the difficult moments, we can often say, I have no king but Caesar. Now, what is the solution to this? What does John present to us here as the witness that we have to cling on to? It's none other than Jesus in his suffering. Because in his suffering, in his silence, before this madness, he witnesses to his great love for his people. Jesus bore the scorn of the world that he made so that we would know that he loves us. This is too profound, and I don't think we can ever, we will never get to the bottom of his great love for us, that the word become flesh, the word that made the world, that formed us, that formed Pilate and this Jewish leadership, that formed the hands that struck him, all the things that he had made, that raised them up from the womb to old age, that carried them, that knew them before they were even born and named them. He stands there before them and before us, silent so that we would know he loves us. This is the world that Jesus walked upon and spent all his days doing good. Now they reject him, and Jesus is silent. He endured this rejection because he loves you. And so, friends, let's make practical use of the things that we observe in this text, the way in which Jesus witnesses to the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for us in his silence before his accusers. In other words, behold the man, Jesus. It would be incomprehensible dullness on our part not to think of these things. How often do we reveal our slowness in the things of God, our slowness in discipleship, that we don't reflect on the love of Jesus revealed preeminently in his rejection, in his suffering for us. And yet it is inest the benefit for us is inestimable to meditate upon his goodness and his love in these verses. We read nowhere in the New Testament that men and women admired Jesus for his strength or for his handsome appearance. Everywhere we read that all the positive response to Jesus is the result of faith. Faith sees the thing that is really there beyond the distorting effects of sin and the blindness that sin brings upon us. 
And so by the light of the Holy Spirit, let us behold Jesus as he really is. Let us behold Jesus as he is in this text before us, bloodied, wearing a crown of thorns, silent before his accusers, so that you and I would know that he loves us. Let us behold Jesus in enduring the rejection of Pilate and the soldiers. Let us behold Jesus in refusing to evade the judgment against sin that God his Father had laid upon him. Let us behold Jesus in lovingly enduring the rejection of the Jewish people whom he had made, who were his own people, who he had done so much good for. Let us behold Jesus in revealing the love of the triune God for sinners like us. Let us rest in the love of Jesus despite all the difficulties we may face. Harold Gillibod wrote a wonderful paragraph in his book, Why the Cross, and I think he says it so well. He, he reminds me, and I hope he'll remind you, of all the ways in which sometimes we can allow the difficulties we face in life, the disappointments, to blind us to the love of God, but he encourages us to look beyond this. He says this, we all know that things sometimes happen in life which seem impossible to reconcile with the fact that the ruler of the universe is a holy and loving God. But here's the truth, the things have happened. We cannot escape the difficulty by doubting them. Now what is to be done in such a case by the Christian who has proved his Lord's love? It is this, to rest in what he knows that God is and not to allow a puzzle to shake his faith in a certainty. This is how we have to deal with a fact which raises unanswerable problems. We have to set over against it the equally certain fact of the love and righteousness of God and leave the puzzles to settle themselves. My friends, I think this is the best thing that the Apostle John gives to us. It's why I love the Apostle John so much. People often say he's the Apostle of love because he just seemed to have a clearer sense than almost anybody else that God loves us. And it just rings through throughout his gospel. You may say, well, doesn't that compromise the truth? Not for John. He also had the clearer sense, as far as we can see, than anybody else that Jesus was the truth. And he held these things so tightly together that Jesus revealed the truth and Jesus was love for his people and he revealed that in his suffering. Jesus was silent before his accusers, silent before all this madness and malice, silent as he felt the weight of the Father's wrath against sin, silent as he bore the malice and the fury of the devil, silent as his closest friends ran away from him so that you and I would know the love of God. Even though sometimes we will face difficulties in this life that sometimes seem just so perplexing, how can a good God love all this? We run back to the cross. And there we find in Jesus, in his suffering, the one who demonstrates the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for us in a way that is greater than anything we could imagine. And there we find in him a love that can hold us fast all of our days. And so let's be people, not merely in the Easter season, but throughout all of our lives, who run back to Jesus at the cross and find in there a witness to his love, the love of God for us, and let us never let it go. And that's a way in which I think we can apply these words in the form of a question for us this morning. In what ways do you make it a regular practice to meditate on the love of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ? I hope that you will. I hope that you have a regular practice in which you are intentional to meditate upon the love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. As I said before, we can go out throughout all of our days and we can be on fire for Jesus outwardly. We can show up for worship. We can do all the right things and pray all the right prayers and read all the right Bible passages and even stick 
to our Bible reading plans at the beginning of the year all the way to the end. But if we don't meditate upon the love of God and Jesus, my friends, I don't think we'll see the gospel as it really is. I don't think we'll really be gripped by the love of Jesus that carries us through even the greatest difficulties that we may face. And so in what ways do you make it a regular practice to meditate on the love of God? I hope that you will. And I hope that you'll often think of this particular passage in John as you struggle and doubt and that you'll see here Jesus in his silence as the greatest witness there is that God loves you. So John 19, 1 through 16, teaches us simply this. By patiently enduring rejection, Jesus bears witness to the truth that God loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for the gospel. Lord, we're grateful that in these words of John, we get to see in a fresh way the depth and the height and the width and the power of Jesus' love for us as revealed in his suffering. And Lord, I pray that you would help us never to forget it. Lord, that you would so grip us with the love that you have shown to us in your son, Jesus Christ, that we would meditate upon it day after day, that we would never let it go. Lord, that we would run to your love as displayed in the cross whenever we are afraid. Lord, that we would run to your love as displayed in the cross whenever we are confused. Lord, that we would run to the cross whenever we feel rejected in the pains of our own suffering. Lord, that we would find in there not an easy answer, but the greatest answer. That we would find in the, 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 the love that is displayed in the cross even a picture of your own love for us. Lord, that we would be so gripped by it that we would become gospel people shaped by the gospel and everything that we think and say and do, and that that would spill over in our witness to others, that we would witness alongside Jesus of the great love that you have displayed, and not only in this Easter season, Lord, but throughout our days, that we would be known as people who give to you the sacrifice of praise because we do not fear anymore. We have been perfected in love because Jesus was silent for our sake. And so in the name of Jesus, the great Savior of sinners, O oh Lord, help us to do this. We ask it in his name, amen.